can be that way, but I'm not that. Way. Yes, 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 yes. I met the king, got the king, got the top of whooping. Yes. He, oh, I see Parker Fast, I got to that in the black. Yes. And all the civil rights stuff, and then we got human rights. Yes. And we got crazy rights. <laughs> okay, yes. Yes, yes, you're right. And I know about nigga Ali. Yes, yes. I give you you want, I got a nigga, you want a nigga, I'll make him up for you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I done been there. I done it. Yes. I ain't too big to come here. Yeah. Yeah. I come here when I can. I got my, I got a big church. Let me in there. Why? Yes, yes. The people that love you, love them. Yes. And if you get back, they get back to you. That's true. Everybody's human. Yes, yes, yes. What's the name of your book? The risk taker. What's it? The risk taker. The risk taker. Oh, the risk taker. Yes. Oh, wow. The risk taker. What's that book about? We gotta we have to get a copy. Yeah, I'm gonna give you one. I'm gonna give you. I got it in the car. Okay. I'll take my keys and go. Yeah, yeah. Let's go get it. Oh, so we're talking with Duck. Duck. The Ducky. That's all. The Ducky. I'm regular. My name is Donald. Donald. But that's what school teacher told me that. Yeah. <laughs> Ducky is my name. Right. Right. My right, right, name is Donald. Okay. Oh. That's why I get my check done. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Don't get that one messed oh, up. Oh yes, yes, yes. Oh, that's your man's done. Yes, sir. <laughs>
Miss Carolyn Reason, who's your mom, actually brought to our attention that there is a stately gentleman who was sitting in, who was at the event that we went to at Peace and the Waters, a friend of Reverend Bishop Steve Johnson. And his name was Madame Ducky Burks. Like he wrote, he goes by the name of Ducky. Ducky, and he wrote the book The Risk Taker. And he is a profound gentleman. Let me give you a before we are about to share an interview. We sat down with him for about 22 minutes to 30 minutes during this event. And we interviewed him. He's 86 years old. He was a member of the NAACP. He's, he was a foundation member he, and an organizer. Um, and he worked. He, he had to organize the NAACP here in Philadelphia. He worked with Martin Luther King Jr. He worked with Reverend Jesse Jackson. He worked with all those people. He knows them very well. We had an opportunity to talk to him. Pick his brain. It was very profound, man. Now, listen, if you don't know who um, Donald Ducky Birds is, I'm going to read. He has a book called The Risk Taker. Are you sure that he gave you a copy? Yes. And he gave me a copy. It's beautiful. He said, um, during his remarkable life, Donald Ducky Birds has not only been the ultimate humanitarian, but a groundbreaker as well. Ducky has recorded a string of firsts over the years, as follows. In 1952, he was the first black student council president of Hatch Junior High School in Camden, New Jersey. In 1954, he was the first black quarterback at Camden High School football team. In 1958, that's in the fall time before we were born. In 1958, yes. <laughs> in 1958, he was the first black re- recreation supervisor. What? Mm-hmm. City of Camden, New Jersey. He's from Camden, New Jersey. In 1960, he was the first black salesman for Wal- Walmart Taylors in Camden. In 1961, he's the first black buyer of Walmart Taylors Camden. In 1964, he was the first entrepreneur in the city of Camden to receive the U.S. Small Business Association SBA Loan Guarantee, the first. In 1964, he's the first black businessman to open retail shops in Camden's Haddon Avenue business trip. In 1965, the first black sales representative to work with Majestic Distributors, which sold Seagram's brands. In 1966, he's the first black sales representative for Ballantine Bear. In 1967, He's the first businessman to sign a lease at Progress Plaza in North Philadelphia. And in 1982, he's the first black business owner in Broadway in Canada. The first of many African-American or black person to do yes. things here yes. in Philadelphia yes. and in Canada. Yep. And we have him on the show. <laughs> we have him on the show. In fact, he's coming up next on the Neil Bourbon podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you wanted to add? No, we'll be right back, guys. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but wasn't it interesting? Yes, it was. <laughs> and um, and you helped to facilitate that discussion. But we'll be right back after these messages. And coming up, but no, it won't. Be, we won't have any messages. But coming up next is the interview and the sit down at the Peace of the Waters. Look, under, we were at Peace of the Waters, and he in, and he was opened. He opened up himself to be interviewed and shared with us. Drop knowledge. He dropped knowledge. Yes. He dropped knowledge. Yes. Here we go.
Hey guys, this is the Nelibor Round, and um, we are still here at Peace on the Water. Um, this is Street Vibe, and we are having an and they are having an event, a community event, closed off and opened up to the street. And we actually we're sitting down now with uh, somebody who was here at the at the event, um, an author. Also, yeah. someone who is an activist. Yeah, I've all my life. Yes. All my life. Work with Martin Luther King Jr. No, I work with Kadak King, yeah. Dr. Uh, yes. I ran Jesse Jackson program, push, I ran it. Yes. Work with him, I ran it. And it's the people I was young. Yes. And I came back and met with Jesse and King. Right. Reverend Solomon all my life. Yes. And Sam Memphis and Philip. Yes. So I've been in the civil rights movement and the human rights. Yes. And brought the registration. I ran Jimmy Carter's campaign. Wow. Here in Philly. Yes. And I ran with Charlie Dobbs' campaign. Yes. Wilson Good. Yes. Uh, Bill Green, I ran it. Uh-huh. John Street. Yes. Nutter. Yes. And Kenny, now I'm getting ready to help Jeff Brown go to run. Yes. Next couple months, my buddy. And, uh, uh, and, I, and how I, long have you lived in the city for? Uh, I've been in Philly 45 years. Oh, that's... that's Yes. I came from Canada. Yes. I was 35. I right. Now I'm 86. I'll be 87 in a couple of months. Okay. You look good. And, uh, yeah. I had a stroke for a couple of years ago. Yeah. I mean, about four years ago. Yeah. I'm coming back, you know. Yeah. yeah. I was lucky. I got it in time. Right. So it right. didn't, didn't bother me. I mean, yes. <laughs> we had. Yes, yes. You get, did it get it? Oh yes, guys. Um, so we he actually we got the book that uh, and we if you have a pen. Check in your bag. We got it. We got to get this autograph. It's called the Risk Taker, written by Donald Ducky Burtz, as told to Kendall Wilson. And we have the book here. And oh, we would love to have your oh autograph. No problem, no problem. And um, oh, and it's already autographed. But yes, please, please, Ronaldo McKenzie. Too many people, so I get that done. Yes, saves time. Yes. Yes, guys, we're sitting here, man, with an extraordinary guy here. And let me let me read. Uh, this is his book, Table of Content. Um, Oh, thank you, and he just gave us a copy. Guys, you come into the community, there are so many resources in your community. There are so many resources in your community, guys. You just have to, and to get involved, get engaged, and keep listening to my podcast. We're going to get the stories, we're going to get the people, and you guys can reach out to them and engage the people and see how they do it, and you can do it too. But listen, listen to the introduction of, 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 of the book. In this book, Donald Ducky Bird shared his triumphs and tribulations over the decades that began with his upbringing in a blue-collar family in Camden, New Jersey. Bird recounts his many fascinating life experiences, including an athletic career that began at an early age in the streets and schoolyards of Camden. He explores his standout yet challenging time as an athlete in, in, in Camden or in high school as a semi-professional basketball player during the height of the civil rights movement from the 1950s into the 1960s. Throughout his career, Ducky's toughest competitor was often racism. With this kind of dedication and commitment, it's no wonder that Ducky retains the sense of reality that marks his jovial but no-nonsense personality. He continues to work tirelessly for many worthwhile causes within and outside the African-American community. 
Throughout the years, he has had a number of friends, including such prominent personalities as the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the Reverend Dr. Leon A. Sullivan, Attorney Cecil B. Moore, the Reverend Jesse L. Jackson, Dr. C. Dolores Tucker, Mr. Samuel L. Evans, former Temple University basketball coach John Cheney, comedian Bill Cosby, and many others. Each experience weaves an, an interesting tapestry of the critical years when he came to grips within himself and his environment. He once said to me, I'll never be free until all of our people are free. He continues to serve on dozens of communities and his organization and leadership skills have left a lasting impact on the lives of those he has touched. This book is a description that thrills the heart and souls as much as it does the mind. That is from the introduction of The Risk Taker by Donald Ducky Bird. An interesting guy, man. We are happy to have you on the podcast. And listen, we're Some more discussion with him on the show. Anytime. Yes, and he's promised to. So it's great to meet someone like this. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm low key. I don't wear it on my back. Yes. Too many problems. Yeah. I don't give out vinegar. I give out honey sweet. I treat everybody the same. Yes. I give you old or young or whatever. Everybody the same. That's why me and Johnson. You know, you try to do something for the family. I, I come as much as I can. It's real. It's not funny, and I'm home, I'm happy. I'm relaxed, take it easy, so you can, it's cool. It's time to take a little break for yourself, you know, like you put, yeah. you, you put yourself out there. So yeah, you know, I love it. I come over here, it never hurts. I come over here, I'm enjoying myself. Yes, sir. No pressure, no phonyism, no... We will pause here with the interview and the sit-down with Donald Ducky Burks for a reading of the book Ducky, the Risk Taker by Donald Ducky Burks, as told to Kendall Wilson. are very few individuals who have done more for the people of Philadelphia and Camden than Donald Ducky Burks. I have known Ducky for nearly 30 years. I have watched him grow and develop and more important, he has not forgotten his roots. Ducky has dedicated his life to helping the people and the community. This great man was there when I started a progress plaza in the 1960s, and he has continued to give back to others less fortunate. As a businessman and risk taker, Ducky has been in the forefront of black entrepreneurship and economic development. He has set an example for others of what commitment and hard work can achieve. I salute the extraordinary talents and tremendous achievements of one of the most remarkable men to have ever come out of, of the Philadelphia area. And that was written by the Reverend Leon Sullivan, 12th of November, 1999. 
A dedication to my mother, Frankie May Burns. I was asked recently, what made me decide that it was time to share my life story with with the world? That's easy. By doing this, I'm fulfilling the last wish of my mother, Frankie Mae Burtz. She wanted me to share my story, the triumphs, the tribulations, the good, the bad, and the ugly. She felt that I had too much to offer others through telling my story to keep it to myself. So, I'll start my story in the most logical place with my mother. They say that behind every good man, there is a good woman. For me, Frankie Maybirth was that woman. Mom was born in Florida in December 1914, the second of 11 children. She lived briefly in the town of Jamaica, Georgia, before moving to Camden, New Jersey, when she was 16. From that moment on, She was a Camden girl. She lived in the city for 70 years and worked in the city's Cooper University Hospital and Trauma Center for about 40 years as a nurse's aide in the hospital's pediatric ward and operating room. My mom was a remarkable woman. She held two or three jobs at a time to help feed the family, which consisted of me, my sisters Shirley, Jacqueline and Brenda, and my brothers Robert, who has since passed away, and Anthony, the youngest of us all. My father, Ralph Birch, died when we were young. So she had to raise us on her own, which wasn't easy. But she made it easier by keeping us all, by keeping all of us busy. We all had household chores that we expect that we were expected to do, and there were plenty of them in a family with one breadwinner. Believe me, for many an evening, I'd be expected to get coal for the furnace, make the fire, get oil for the lamps, and cut firewood in the backyard. However, we got so much back for all of our hard work. Mom was our biggest cheerleader and the biggest inspiration, not only to our family, but to the neighborhood at large. While we may have grown up poor, mom wouldn't let us use that as an excuse to do the wrong things. She taught us the golden rule, to do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. We were also taught to share, to give to others and not to waste anything. Mom gave me my nickname. She'd break out with her warm, loving smile every time she told a friend, neighbor, or reporter how my how my bow-legged youth led how my bow-legged youth led to it. I called him Ducky because he waddled like a duck. She chuckled. She was a very strong Christian, and her faith gave her that strength. Mom was baptized at the Little Rock Baptist Church in Camden, and that became her home church. She enjoyed reading the Bible to us at home as well. Now, when I moved to Philadelphia, and she stayed with me for a while due to illness, she also became a member of the Zion Baptist Church in North Philadelphia, my church home. 
she also became aware of the part that Reverend Leon Sullivan played in my life. Now I talk about, I'll talk more about that in a later chapter. There was no place where my mom's support of me and what I wanted to make of my life was more evident than in my career in sports. She'd tell everyone about my early love of basketball and how I had formed my own team by the time I was eight. She became a real sports fan because of my interest. When mom started having problems with her health as she aged, I took her in with me. She later had to be placed in Temple University Hospital and was eventually sent to the Woodland Care Center in Camden. While you hear horror stories about nursing homes and the care that family members can receive in such places, Woodland Care Center was good to my mother and allowed us to be there for my mother around the clock to make sure that everything was okay. In fact, the caretakers would look forward to seeing our family, especially me. If I learned anything through that experience, I learned this. Don't feel guilty if you can't take care of a sick loved one and have to put them in a nursing home. If you can't do the job of caring for your loved one right, you shouldn't do it. You'll drain yourself physically, emotionally, and financially if you try and aren't successful. One of mom's last public appearances was at my induction into the South Jersey Basketball Hall of Fame in 1995. The Woodland Care Center medical staff gave me permission to bring her to the ceremonies with a paramedic, with a paramedic on call. While the other inductees were, uh, were there with their proud families and friends that night, I can safely say that no one was more proud than my mother. That was my mother. She beamed as my name was called and I was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Mom was called home to be with the Lord on November 3rd, 1995. I had talked to her about how she wanted her homecoming service conducted and shared these plans with my sister Shirley. We didn't argue about it or anything. It just was the way it was and thankfully the services went smoothly. Because Mom had two church homes, she also had two home-going services. The service at Zion Baptist Church was conducted on Wednesday, November 15th, and the service at the First Nazarene Baptist Church was held on Thursday, November 16th. Both services were well attended by the people I had introduced her to along the way, including former Camden Mayor Arnold Webster, Philadelphia City Councilwoman Marion Tasco, Pennsylvania State Representative Leanna Washington, and Philadelphia Mayor John F. Street who at that time was the city council president. Mom's grandson, my son, Mark, sang, walk around heaven all day at the funeral, and I represented the family. We had so much support from everyone to get us through the days after my mother died. Mom would have been embarrassed by all of the attention. My mother, Frankie Maybirds, was laid to rest in the Evergreen Cemetery in Camden. I hope that I can make the kind of impact on the lives of my children that she made on mine. She is still my biggest influence. That was a reading from the book Ducky, The Risk Taker 
and I just read the, the of course, the fo- the, the foreword, written by Reverend Leon Sullivan, and of course, preface to chapter one, entitled "A Dedication to My Mother, Frankie Mayberts," written by Donald Ducky Burts. This is the Neoliberal Realm Podcast. We'll be right back with more. Welcome back to the episode. We will pause the reading of The Risk Taker, written by Donald Ducky Burtz himself, to pick up from where we left off with the interview or the sit-down with Mr. Burtz himself while at the Peace and the Waters um, in Philadelphia, Germantown. And I think, um, Dante, you were at the, the sit-down as well. Yes, <clears throat> yes it was an event. Um, it was a community event, actually, that they were having. Um, for the church. Yeah, um, but what? But this particular gentleman. Well, yeah, yeah. What were your thoughts of the interview and what we had heard so far? Uh, well, an inspiration, um, inspiration man. Uh, you know, come from from poverty. Come and from what we are still trying to uh, fix the the country, the world. You know, he. He kind of came up <laughs> going through the whole process of came from humble beginnings. His mom died. I'm sorry, his father died at a very young age. So no, so he, so pretty much he lived in a single parent home. Um, having lived in a two parent home, then to lose one one parent and to have and to be raised by one uh, by his mom and two and for and you know and all of his kids, all of his siblings seem to seem to turn out um, to be great success success stories. And he said it wasn't easy though. He talks about that. And we're gonna read some more um, we're gonna talk some more about this book. But we're gonna what well, let's pick up from where we left off in terms of he's talking about the who he is. He says I'm a regular person. He says I'm regular. You know, he's achieved a lot. He's a man that has risen to the top. But he says that I'm at this event speaking with speaking with various individuals from all walks of life, irrespective of where I am and where and where I am now. But I never forget my roots. Quite a powerful interview, quite a powerful gentleman, and we are pray, we continue to pray for him. And we will continue and we will read and we will read chapters one to three of his book after we play at about four or five minutes of the interview or the sit down that we had with him. Here is Mr here is Mr. Donald Duckyberts, the risk taker, talking with us some time ago. And then we'll come back and read some more from his book. This is the Neoliberal Round Podcast. I'm Ronaldo McKenzie. And of course, with me is always Dante Nelson. We'll be right back. Vice versa, you see, certain times. I said, I come at 12 or 1 and leave at 4 or 5. The night I got to go to my lodge, one of my brothers got shot, you know, crazy stuff. Got a prayer vigil. Of course, we don't want to know if we're going to make it on. Okay. Got a thing at 7 o'clock, and I got to go over there. 
got an Adrian going on. I'm going to test him out, yeah. Welcome home. Community service. Hey, everybody come back from the shop. Everybody support, you know, show love yeah. in the community. You know, show their awareness of what's See, going on. We got to learn. It's hard. Because the white man trained our minds so terrible. Yes. We got to undress brain damage from good brain. It's hard because they did a good job on us. So the only way we can do it, we got to do it ourselves. They're not going to do it for us. Yeah. They can be nice and all that, but they're not going to do it for us. We got to do We, black men, got to do it. And the black women are there. And the black women always been there. Always. So the black man got to take his part and take a part of his community. And, and the people want to go all over. They ain't got to go over. Just take your block in your house. Your house. If they ain't right, straighten it out. You gotta straighten your son out to do it. It's wrong. You, not the cops, not the community, not the bad gang, not the hustlers. You gotta do it. If you don't do it, it's gonna trickle down the problem we got now. Now we got the problem now because they shoot me. White man gotta kill us. That's Satan, man, killing us. And we follow Satan trying to be our God. Get behind us, Satan, get behind us. Yes. And go ahead and do what we gotta do for ourselves. Cause Satan, Satan's job is to kill us. His job is to keep us messed up. His job is to be racism. That's his job. So our job is to say, hey man, they're not here. Go somewhere else, not here. Yes. And if we don't do it, the more our generation is getting wiped out. You know? I mean, Trump trying to take us back. And they blame Trump. He ain't the only one. He's just leading what they want to do anyhow. They got a lot of people in the closet. They wouldn't get that many votes if they didn't have no people in the closet. And they use him. Yeah, that was which they always have been doing. Yes, right. And, that, and I tell our people. Anybody can say, go do it. Yeah, our people got to understand that we're in a triple cross. Yes. They got to understand. The next thing you got to do, the, the key thing is, get on our knees and pray to God. They don't want to put God in the picture. God's too straight. God ain't crooked. You know, God's straight. You don't play that crooked stuff. That's Satan. We got to understand. We got to understand that. And right in front of us, we got genocide in front of our face. You know, I mean, we got to learn how to talk to our children. They kill off the race. You ain't got no race to get the children. They poison them from the old days. I'm, I'm lucky of uh, uh, the last of the Mohegans. I'm 87. I was here. And I was marching with Dr. King. That was, that was Donald Ducky Bird saying he was the last of the Mohegans. 87 years old. 87. And he said, I was here when I was marching with Martin Luther King. He marched with Martin Luther King Jr. He was there. Powerful. We, took, we, we, we are taking this break because we're going to, we're going to, coming up next is, is the continuation of the reading of his book entitled Ducky. 
The Risk Taker by Donald Ducky Birch, as told to Kendall Wilson, read by Ronaldo McKenzie. A reading from the book Ducky, The Risk Taker by Donald Ducky Burks, as told to Kendall Wilson, narrated by Ronaldo McKenzie. Chapter 1 Ducky or Ducky's Early Years, Part 1. I came into this world on, on April 18, 1936, in Camden, New Jersey the second of six children of parents Frankie Mae Burtz and Ralph Burtz. Our father died while we were very young, leaving my mother with the task of providing for us and pointing us in the right direction. She instilled in us the values that would shape our lives. She taught us the golden rule, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. Mum worked two and three jobs to support the family, so there was no time for problem children. She was usually at work when we got home from school. Her mother left instructions for the older for the older ones, Shirley, Jackie and me, to take care of chores after school and do our homework before we could even think of going out to play. When we didn't follow those instructions, we could expect some kind of punishment. Sometimes it was keeping us from doing what we enjoyed most. Occasionally, it was a good old-fashioned whipping. Most times, Mom used the strap on me. Other times, she'd have me go out in the yard and break off a tree branch. A switch, we called it. That really stung. These were great reminders not to get out of line again. Yes, I'd say she was strict. When she came home from work, she'd wake us up. Rarely did she accept our explanations. And why would she? Now, I want to thank my mom for the tough love she gave us. The love that helped us to make it through life. We didn't have the luxury of or comforts of modern plumbing. But we had what, what we called an outhouse. We had to heat water for our wash-ups and, ba- and our baths. We had to share tubs, usually four, usually two for each fresh tub, and several of us slept in the same bed. We were taught to share, to give to others, despite our limited resources. We ate leftovers and enjoyed them. We had many a meal on baked pork and beans and hot dogs, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and lots of of hot oatmeal. We did our share of babysitting for the younger ones in the family, keeping them clean, dressed and fed and whatever else had to be done before mom got home from work. Like many black families, we were poor, but didn't know we were poor, probably because of our survival instincts. We found a way to stay warm and comfortable in the winter and cool in the summer. You could stay outside and sleep on the porch in those days in the summer and nobody would bother you. Nobody would touch your bicycle if you left it outside your house then. 
there always seemed to be the aroma of food being fried, boiled, stewed, or baked in our home. We had neighborhood policing then for people who got out of hand. We, not just the police, would not tolerate crime or any threat to the safety and well-being of anyone in our community. On Sunday, we'd have grits, fish, and other breakfast foods in the morning. Then off to church in the morning, afternoon, and evening, all day. Once in a while, we would get treated to a movie. It was about devotion to God, no matter who was delivering the message. It was about church, church, church on Sundays. Of course, she read the Bible every day. She'd read it to us at bedtime, too. That was her source of strength. And we did some things that raised a lot of eyebrows. You know, how you would roam around. The A&P, the giant supermarket chain, would dump old fruit in a dumpster near a railroad's third rail. You step on a third rail and you are out of here. We'd go to the dumpster anyway to get the fruit, cut out the rotten parts, and eat the good parts. We didn't realize it then, but we were taking dangerous risks to satisfy our personal and our personal hunger and thirst. One of my first real experiences as a risk taker. All of all of the guys did it. Some of them because doctors and lawyers, some of them became doctors and lawyers. They couldn't say they did not do it because I was with them. We would eat the fruit right there by the railroad tracks. Kids and grown-ups. Oranges, tangerines, pears, bananas and apples. My mom heard about what we were doing. She didn't want me to go near the tracks because she knew the third way was dangerous and she did not want me to get sick from the fruit. Back then, we weren't afraid or embarrassed. You could understand why my mom would be so concerned. A couple of kids got killed on the third rail. One tripped on it and was electrocuted. Despite our Christian upbringing, we were brave and daring young people, in other words, risk takers. The Campbell Soup Company used to run tomato trucks from the farms into the city, lining them up in Centerville, South Camden, to downtown. People used to steal tomatoes off these trucks to make tomato soup, tomato stew, fried tomatoes, or any kind of meal with tomatoes. The entire community knew about the tomato line. I found out about these trucks that would take you out to those Jersey farms where you would, where you could pick peaches, strawberries, blueberries, apples, and other fruits and vegetables. We'd leave at 5 a.m. before the sun came up and work from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. It was fun. I was making $5 a day, $25 a week. Mom knew I was bringing the money home. We looked at other ways to bring home the bacon. Back then, the delivery man would drop off bread, milk, and goodies on the steps of neighborhood stores. <laughs> we would go shopping, quote-unquote, for food, if you know what shopping means. We would go shopping for food, watching the bread man and the milk man. We never hurt anybody though. 
but we had people looking out for us to make sure no one was coming. Sometimes, if you asked the stories, if you asked, the stories would give you day-old bread and other goodies. There were about 20 stories that were our targets, and we used to go to at least one each week. We had no shame. This was about survival to us. I wasn't an angel during those early years, occasionally getting into different kinds of mischief. I remember stealing grapes on top of a man's roof, uh, a, Mr. Jo- a Mr. Jones, listening to my buddies. We climbed up the pole next to the fence and got on the roof, pulling grapes off the vine. My grandfather was in the construction business and we lived with him for a while before my mom got her own place. I used to stay with him later in Pleasantville, New Jersey, but didn't enjoy myself because he was too strict. Wanted you in the house at a certain time. He would question you. But I was always telling my mother that I wanted to have my own business. I was about eight years old when I began to sell apples, peaches, and watermelons on the truck for Mr. Stanley White. Yet, we'd steal milk and donuts from the neighborhood grocery stores as our only source of breakfast food. Of course, we didn't tell our mother because she would not have food for us. She would not have stood for it under any circumstances. So, as I got older and strong enough, I would cut out wood for an elderly lady, go and get oil from the store after school, work in a candy store, and during the summer months, also work at the frozen custard stand. I began to shine shoes to also bring a few quarters into our home. We had very little money to buy clothes, but we used discipline with what we had. There were our school clothes, Sunday clothes, and play clothes. And there was a certain pair of shoes we wore only on Sundays or special occasions. We sometimes had to stuff paper inside our everyday shoes to make them wearable. I wore hand-me-downs for the most part. Hand-me-downs for the most part. And actually built my wardrobe around the old clothing nobody else wanted. The Salvation Army used to have a truck to pick up the throwaways, and I'd get clothes from them. So, by the time I reached junior high school, I was finding other ways to earn money. I began caddying on the golf course of the Woodcrest Country Club. Caddy day was Monday, when we played golf. I played with my friend and mentor, Johnny Butler. You had to hitchhike to get to the club, then get a ride back in town with some of the club members. That wasn't my only occupation. I sold the Afro-American newspaper and washed and polished cars on Sunday after church. Yet, I found time to play. At five, I was already a basketball fan, organizing basketball teams and going around the city playing other teams, which kept a lot of us out of trouble. But while I was at Hatch Junior High School, or Yes, Hatch Junior High School. Several of us kids broke into our school. We didn't ransack it. We just wanted to play basketball. The police came and took us to jail. It was embarrassing and we feared the worst as our mothers had to come bail us out. We were released and put on a year's probation. There was an upside to what we had done though. There were plenty of schoolyards in which to play but 
during inclement weather, there were no facilities open for us for indoor activity. So two years later, a YMCA was a YMCA was provided. As I moved into senior high school at Camden High, I began working at Cooper Hospital, giving back rubs, bathing patients, caring for the incontinent when the, when the patients expired. I prepared them for the morgue. No honest job was beneath me. My need for cash was more important, so I worked hard. I was also a lifeguard at the South Camden swimming pool and later worked on the chain gang at Campbell's Soup, handling hot cans, using rubber gloves. After Campbell, I was employed as a shine boy on commission at Garden State Racetrack in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, working on the Stevenson Brothers, or working for the Stevenson Brothers. I also sold cosmetics in the men's restrooms. I noticed that people were betting heavily at the racetracks and lost a lot of money. I used to gamble myself in the early years, but almost killed a boy during an argument and decided I was going down the wrong road. Of course, there were times when an already overcrowded house had more family members than it could afford. Yet, we maintained an upbeat attitude of love contributing and sharing. In a three-bedroom house in Camden, two aunts stayed with us, later an uncle. We enjoyed them. Not only did they share with the experiences, but also with our lives as well. My uncle attended some of my basketball, football, and baseball games. Even when they didn't live with us, they'd visit my mom with their kids, our cousins, and we spent good times together while the grown-ups shared things that we weren't supposed to hear. That's the end of chapter one, part one, Ducky's Early Years. Before we go to chapter two, or sorry, chapter one, part two, it's quite interesting. I just want to go back to where we read earlier. We read, we said, he said on page 10 of his book, chapter one, part one, like many black families, we were poor, but didn't know we were poor, probably because of our survival survival instincts. I wrote that in my book, Neoliberalism, Globalization, Income Inequality, Poverty and Resistance, looking at poverty, looking at how globalization and, and how strategy and, and policy and so on, how that create poverty and so on and so forth. And we look at the international, we look at slavery and how other stuff can, and the dynamics of people and so on and so forth. But I talk about the fact poverty, and I even discussed that in my one of my classes at Georgetown, and I said to, my, to one of my professors that that's one of the things that I'm interested in, in studying, you know, Poverty, the experience of poverty. Because book one looks at globalization and poverty in the global south. But what about globalization and the experience of globalization in the global north, post-industrial countries like the US? Because I talk about people in Jamaica and in the global south. They don't have a they don't have much. They're lacking in resources. And I say they are poor. People were poor, but they didn't know that they were poor. I said enough in part of the book. We were poor and we didn't know that we were poor. 
and you don't and you can you don't know that you're poor until you find yourself in other circumstances and in other situations but he explained why but listen to what he says what what he says that why he says that we were poor but didn't know we were poor he says because of our survival instincts we found a way to stay warm and comfortable in the winter and cool in the summer they found a way and of course what and then he talks about many other ways one of the ways is that they would steal stealing was one of the ways they get by you say that the milkman and the grocery they would stop out they'll drop stuff off at the steps of the grocery store to the people to pick it up but but the, they would be there hanging out waiting and they would, and they did se- and they did several different things to get by stealing was one of them come to think of it and they didn't have a ymca they didn't have any playground so what did they do they would jump the fence they would break into their school to play basketball they would commit a crime in order to play basketball that's quite it and you find what and not you know this is in black and brown communities here in the u.s several years ago because he's eight to seven years old and do you know what this is still happening even today fast forward several years it's still happening today but the way how people think about crime and think crime is much more sophisticated now so the way in which people look at it I guess you look at what you did as a boy, people laugh about these things. You know, especially people who are, who are, who are in you know, places of success, you laugh about these things. But you look at how, and how, you look, how it is being done now. It's like, but you know what? I talk about the importance of church and the importance of developing that, that softness, that developing a human conscience. That these boys had that. They had that back then too, you know. They had that. But um, it's quite interesting, though, that people are poor. But, you know, you look what happened in the global south. It's the same kind of thing. They are poor and they don't know that they are poor. But wherever you find black and brown people, you find, okay, you find where they have to use survival instincts. It could be the global south or it could be here in the global north in pockets, in certain pockets where you find certain pedigree of people. Of course, I talk about that in my upcoming book, Neoliberal Globalization, Reconsider, Looking at the Global North. But we'll continue with chapter two of this amazing book, Looking at the Life of the Risk Taker, Donald Ducky Burns. We'll be right back after this with chapter one, part two. Ducky, The Risk Taker, by Donald Ducky Burks, as told to Kendall Wilson, narrated by Renaldo McKenzie. Chapter 1 The Early Years, School Era, Part 2 It has been said that the school years from kindergarten through elementary, junior and senior high schools are the most important years in a person's life. Those years certainly shaped my outlook and resolve, learning the facts of life and learning how to get along with people from other sides of the track. I was interacting with people of other races, cultures and faiths, and even polishing up my leadership skills. My education, career, began at summer elementary school. 
People said, by the time I got to Hatch Junior High School, I was already a friendly, outgoing person, a leader, an organizer, and an athlete, skilled in baseball, football, basketball, and track. I was a pretty decent student, although there was the time I received a failing grade and my mother told the coach to take me off the team. In a respectful way, the coach said he couldn't because I was too valuable to the team. At Hatch Junior High, I got my first real taste of politics. We campaigned for student offices and I was elected president of the senior class. Not only did I get along with my teammates and coaches in the four sports in which I thrived, but I also found myself serving as captain of the teams. I never liked to lose and was always encouraging my teammates to give their best so they'd have few regrets when their best efforts fell short of victory. We tried hard to win and we loved to play sports, which taught us how to succeed in life. It was at Hatch where I came under the guidance of teacher, coach, mentor, Mr. Robert T. Dickinson, who left an indelible imprint on my life. Junior high is a critical stage for many young teens who begin thinking of dropping out of school at some point in their senior high school years. Mr. Dickinson encouraged me not to waste my God-given talents as a student and athlete and encouraged me by saying I could make a great contribution to my senior high school, Camden High. He came to Hatch in 1948 as one of the first black teachers to integrate the junior and senior high schools and served as gym instructor and coach of the basketball, football, gymnastics, and track teams. After retiring in 1971, he became one of the directors of the famous Camp Atwater in East Brookfield, Massachusetts. At the age of 12, I was already recognized as one of the most outstanding athletes in the city. My profile would grow even larger at Camden, at Camden High School. When I arrived at Camden High, my reputation as an all-around athlete had already preceded me. I think my best sport was basketball, where I played all of the infield positions and catcher. You know, I, 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 I apologize. Let me repeat that. I think my best sport was baseball, where I played all of the infield positions and catcher. I, I just thought for a moment there, I mean, they do not play. Um, they don't have that, those positions in basketball. Moving right along. I loved basketball best and became an all-city, all-South Jersey and all-Jersey selection in basketball, helping my team to win city, regional and state championships. But I can't ignore what I was able to accomplish in the other sports. I made history as the first black quarterback at Camden High, where I also played safety during a time when black quarterbacks were rare at predominantly white schools, my teammates and coaches were overwhelmingly supportive of me. The quarterback sees the whole field on offense, and the safety sees the whole field on defense. If you understand both positions, it will give you a better and clear picture of how life functions. I enjoyed usually rewarding relationships with my football and baseball coach, Joe Papiano, and with my basketball coach, Anthony Tony Alfano. That's why I returned to Camden High after I graduated to serve as assistant coach for the basketball team. Coach Papiano needed me with the, with the football and, and baseball teams. 
can then continue to win city, regional and state championships. My senior year in 1955 with the basketball team was especially satisfying. The program booked saluting Camden's 1955 Black Hall of Fame inductees paid a special tribute to the school's surprising performance that year. The excerpt from the program described our team as the Tony Alfano men, the Tony Alfano men, and was rated nothing more than average at season's opening. But roared through the South Jersey Group 4 league like a hurricane. For the first time in a decade, a team went through the league undefeated. Camden did it. When they rooted Collingswood for the second time, they finished Group 4 competition with an 8-0 record and the the championship tucked under their belts. The program pointed out that Coach Alfano carried only a 9-man squad, actually it was 10, with Coach building a team around the ball-handling wizardry of Doc Burks, the defensive play of Sonny Henman, the shooting eye of Kenny Fowler, and the scoring antics of Jerry Davis and Corky Henson. The article pointed out that captain by Ducky and co-captain by Kenny, the team had the added bench, strength of Monk, Verfach, T-Bone Morrow, Franklin Hall, Red Remick, and Ernie Getches. Or Ernie Genches. Yes, I captained that team to the South to the South Jersey Championship and was named to the All South Jersey Basketball Team. I give college some thought, some thought. Andy Hinson wanted me to come down to Florida at, at, at Bethune Cookman College, where Andy and John Cheney had built their own legacies. Tony Alfano had set me up at Temple University and Seton Hall. Duke, uh, Duke Duskeny, also a national power with Ricketts brothers from Pottstown, PA. Dick and Dave and Chihugo Green made me an offer. There were so many others, but I was not ready at the time. High school was a wonderful, an enjoyable experience. I had both the admiration and respect for our basketball coach Tony Alfano. He had confidence in me and always seemed grateful when I came back in later years to give him a hand. He was an excellent teacher of fundamentals. He never received his just due. Although most of my acclaim came from basketball, I thoroughly enjoyed baseball and football. One of my gripes today is that so many coaches want kids to play only want want kids to play only one sport when it is more fun to face competition the year round. I think back to Ron Itchy Smith, the best high school basketball player I ever saw. But he also played great baseball and football and it didn't hurt his basketball game. It seems that many of the coaches in every sport are more interested in helping themselves than helping the players. People made a lot over Bo Jackson and Deion Saunders as two sport all-stars in Major League Baseball and the National Football League, respectively. But they were hardly the first. Dave Winfield played at a high level in four sports while in college. So did Jim Brown and, and, and Johnny Sample. There were so many multi-sports athletes in college in the past years, but you don't see too you don't see that too often now. Coaches won't always have your best interest at heart. So do your best to be all you can 
and not limit your opportunity. I felt embarrassed at times, getting the kind of attention that I did. But my mom and family and closest supporters said that I had earned it and that it would inspire others that the boy next door can reach unlimited heights in life while overcoming all kinds of hurdles. I really never left my schools in Camden, going back to encourage the students to push forward and listen to the wisdom coming from the voices and hearts of my instructors, mentors and coaches became a regular activity of mine. I know the value of giving back. As many as 25 colleges and universities recruited me, most of them wanting my basketball skills, but I made a decision. As much as I loved sports, I loved my mother and family more than ever. As much as I loved sports, I loved my mom and my family more than ever coming out of high school and knew they needed me more than I needed fame on the basketball court. Not going to college was the most was the worst mistake of my life. I know somehow I would have been able to work out a situation where I could help my family and pursue a college education. These alternatives were not that clear to me at the time. I will never regret putting my family before my pursuit of education. Thankfully, I was able to help support my family and help my mother in a variety of ways while maintaining contact with the basketball world by coaching and playing. After high school, I wound up at the New York shipyard working on the famous Kitty Hawk ship. It was tough on the waterfront, hot in the summer, freezing during the winter. The management and the union knew my sports background, so I had to play basketball for the company and baseball for the union to secure an inside job. I later became supervisor of the recreation department for the city of Camden. Then having become involved in politics at the age of 21 with councilman Elijah Perry, I was promoted to the director of recreation. I was also very active in the civic community and headed the junior, in, the junior NWACP under Dr. Ulysses S. Wiggins. Because of the pressure brought upon companies and businesses by the NWACP and the Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, C-O-R-E. I began work as the first black salesman. As I began work, I began work as the first black salesman for Majestic, which marketed Seagram whiskey. It was Toscanism, of course, or it was tokenism, of course, but at least it let us in the door. Then I joined Ballantine Bear as a salesman and as a promoter in the area. It was here that I would learn marketing, point of sales, how to conduct sales meetings, and how to deal with business people through special training classes, workshops, and seminars. In the process, I attended banquets and other public events, including cocktail parties, and hired hostesses and models, all part of the company's community outreach and public relations campaigns. It was always told by my boss to have a picture taken everywhere I went, showing myself, other staff representatives, if possible, and the product. The photo, which would always have me on the inside, would be included with my report, my documentation that I was at the event. Then I made a move that would bring me closer to my dream of someday running my own business. 
I began working with Harold Waters at Wilmont Taylors and became fascinated with the business. I went from stock boy to his first black salesman, to manager, to buyer. Harold and his people noticed that when I accompanied them on their trips to New York, I was very helpful in selecting styles that would go over big with his customers. Even the people at the clothing factory said in a friendly way that I had a better feel for the buys than my boss. He noticed it and turned the buying over to me. There may be pressure to excel in athletics, but you get that pressure in business too. I now, I now had to make decisions on whether we could spend a lot of money on clothes on a certain style. If the style didn't, didn't take with the customers, we could lose money and the clientele. I learned other things from Harold. He never seemed to use the company's money in running the business. He would make seasonal loans and operate off the capital. That's the end of chapter one, part two. When we come back, we'll pick up looking at chapter one, part three. Ducky, early years, crisis and blessings. This is the Nearly Boy Around Podcast. Wasn't that powerful what um, Ducky Bird said in, in the book? He said, he said, the quarterback sees the whole field on offense and the safety sees the whole field on defense. If you understand both positions, it will give you a better and clearer picture of how life functions. And I'm getting a clip, to be honest, I'm, I was more of a basketball fan. And now that I'm playing fantasy football, um, I'm in my second year of playing fantasy football. I understand what he's talking about. <laughs> and he played, um, he played basketball. I mean, he played football. He played all, all the sports. But he talked about his prowess and his achievements as a black quarterback at Camden High School. But, you know, what was also poignant and quite interesting and powerful, what he, he said in the, um, I, I wrote, I read just now in, the, in, in his book, in, and he talked about his life. He said he met someone. He said, I began working with Harold Walters at Wilmont Taylors and became fascinated with the business. I went from stock boy to his first black salesman, to manager, to buyer. And, you know, and that, that was quite telling. He said, then I made a move that would bring me closer to my dream of someday running my own business. And that was quite important. You know, when people, I said, I say to you, every opportunity that you have in, in life, or every, not, not every, almost everything or every, every, wherever you find your life can be an opportunity that you have to take, a, take advantage of. Make the most of it. You can learn something from that opportunity. Yes? Whatever, wherever you find yourself, you can make, you can learn something that can take you to the next level or, or can become a, a launching point. And his really, he made good use of his relationship working for Mr. Harold. 
because he was noticed. Quite powerful. When we come back, we'll, we'll wrap up with chapter 1, part 3. Ducky Early Years, Crisis and Blessings. And that will conclude the first part of a three-part series that we are doing, looking at Donald Ducky Burtz and the reading of his book. When we come back in the next episode, the next, the next episode, part two, we will continue with the live interview with him as well. We'll be right back after this. Ducky, The Risk Taker, by Donald Ducky Burtz, as told to Kendall Wilson. Narrated by Ronaldo McKenzie. Chapter 1, Part 3. Ducky's Early Years, Crisis and Blessings. Remember Frank Sinatra's song that mentions something like, Riding high in April, shot down in May? I was in that kind of groove during a special period in my high school years. My girlfriend, Gloria, whom I met in 1954, called me on the phone one night during my senior year at Camden High and told me she was pregnant. I was stunned. Yet, I still couldn't imagine how badly she had felt when she discovered her condition. We were both teenagers in our last year in high school and, of course, in no position to be raising children with no regular job in hand. I was feeling that my great athletic career and the potential for a college scholarship had to be put on hold or at worst, everything had gone down the drain. She was so upset when she called. My brother and I drove to her house or drove down to her house, met in the car and later drove to the area park. She made it clear she was not going to have an abortion and we decided we were going to tell our parents separately. I wound up telling my sister, Shirley, and my sister told my mom. My mom's first reaction was that I had to take care of my responsibilities, an attitude I had already accepted. Gloria's father only asked that I take care of his oldest child and be good to her. I didn't consider my future child a burden but a responsibility and challenge for me to make mature and rational decisions. I had to drop out of school my senior year and get a full-time job, but with encouragement from my family and mentors like Mr. Lou Walls, I enrolled in night school at Woodrow Wilson High School. During her pregnancy, I would say, or I would stay over at Gloria's house some nights, but mostly I made sure I was with her own, with her on weekends. My my work hours were from 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. and school hours from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. My first son, Mark, was born March 23, 1956, and our second son, David, January 3, 1961. Two great family treasures. Gloria and I got married when I was 22, which I still think may have been too early for me. Long before I began building relationships with partners, my mom was dishing out advice. She'd tell me to date women who enjoyed sports and other things in which I was involved to avoid conflicts of interest. 
she said it was important for the partners to be considerate that if you're not going to make it home for dinner to call and have the plate set aside to warm up when you did not get there that kind of advice never gets old that's the end of chapter one part three ducky's early years crisis and blessings and of course the end of chapter one this is the neoliberal round podcast leave it right back Thank you for listening to another powerful and insightful episode of the Neoliberal Round podcast. This podcast is a three-part series looking at Donald Ducky Burtz, his life, his legacy, and of course, reading from his book, his latest book, The Risk Taker, which talks about his life from his early years up to retirement and beyond his work with the civil rights movement his work with and journeys with Martin with um, Reverend um, Martin Luther King Jr with Reverend Jesse Jackson work as as a businessman first one of the first business one of the first black men to open up businesses in in Camden and among the first in Philadelphia as someone from humble beginnings you know you want to you want to chronicle and you want to document you want to learn from these people's life you want to learn from these people as well who were the men around martin luther king jr who were the men around reverend, reverend jesse jackson there's so many other persons in our own communities that have made tremendous impact whose life we have to take note of we we ourselves we have to document it ourselves and then we have to share it with the world it is it 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 takes it 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 is with great pride and privilege and an honor that i have to be able to sit down and talk with this gentleman to write about his life to tell his story in in his own words through the platforms that we have created continue to support us at the nilo baron podcast at https colon forward slash forward slash anchor.fm slash the neoliberal slash support you can subscribe on any stream or you can go to anchor.fm and subscribe you can listen to us at renaldocmckenzie.com and renaldocmckenzie.com is down now we will we are doing some updates to that page and you can also visit our main page the neoliberal.com which is from the neoliberal corporation serving the world today to solve tomorrow's challenges through our communication which is to make popular what was the monopoly If you haven't gotten a copy of my book Neoliberalism Globalization Income Inequality Poverty and Resistance available in all platforms please get your copy today it's available worldwide anywhere you are and indeed my second book Neoliberal Globalization Reconsidered will be out hopefully by next January but you will know when it comes out and we'll continue to talk about it as we get closer to the publication date again as we get closer to the holidays and the end of the year We thank you so much for your support. We thank you so much for your listenership and we thank you so much for sharing us with the world. Let us know how we are doing and how we can improve. Continue to support us and send us and and share the show with your friend and if you hope that if you also want to participate, you can send us voice messages or you can send me an email. 
RinaldoCMcKenzie at gmail.com. Please, please, we are open to, 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 to you sharing on this show because we are grassroots and we are down to earth. But we are serious. I'm looking forward to start. To, I mean, I'm looking forward to resuming teaching at the Jamaica Theological Seminary next semester, Caribbean Thought, as I seek to develop critical thinking among Caribbean and African diasporan students. This is the Neoliberal Realm Podcast. What good?